This is Chapter 27 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Strong women feature prominently in this week's book selections. First up is a thriller by Jen Phillips, which poses the question, how far would a mother go to protect her child? Then we get a look at a debut historical fiction novel that introduces us to a powerful woman many people have never heard of. Plus, our Pat Farnock, a strong woman in her own right, talks to the NYPD's most decorated detective about his new memoir. Fierce Kingdom by Jen Phillips is a suspenseful and gripping page-turner that will keep you hooked until the very last paragraph. Full disclosure here, I polished it off in a single sitting. Without giving too much away, she tells us what readers can expect. Fierce Kingdom is about a mother and her four-year-old son who are in the zoo one afternoon, much like any after- other afternoon for them, when as they're leaving, they hear gunshots. The rest of the novel plays out over the course of the next three hours, all within the walls of the zoo, as Joan and her son try to evade the gunman. And as they also come across other survivors, uh, we meet the other people within the zoo, including one of the gunmen. And so the the book plays out asking sort of what do you owe your child? What would you do for your child? But also what would you do for someone else's child? What would you do for a complete stranger? And motherhood is really and that that need to protect or that instinct to protect one's own is really at the center of this book. Right. Yeah, you know, now uh this it is sort of labeled as a thriller, but I didn't think of it that way when I started out writing it. I knew that I wanted to write a book that dealt with motherhood. And I was sitting at the zoo one day uh, with my four-year-old staring at the same exhibits for the 389th time. Got a lot of time to think <clears throat> as you're staring at um, staring at monkeys for the 14th day in a row. <laughs> and probably because of the kind of stories that are becoming all too common on the news, started thinking, what would we do right now if the gunman came in? Where would we go? What would be the hiding place? Um, or would we hide? What, what would it be like because he's with me? And what seemed at first like just a dark daydream began to seem like a really interesting way to explore motherhood and parenthood, or at least in the context of this particular mother and son. Um, and so, yeah, and the book and the book unfolded from there. I liked the idea of exploring parenting in such an intense situation and where it's literally life or death. It's also a really tight focus because it does all play out within the walls of the zoo. So yeah, the geographic focus is really tight and it plays out in almost real time over, over the three hours. Uh, so it, it wound up being, I thought, a really interesting framework. And you also set up this great parallel between who is more dangerous, who's more fierce, humans or the animals at the enclosures at the zoo. Right. No, I, yeah, I love, as I said, I, you know, the idea came to me in the zoo. So in some ways that started out uh, just because that's where it envisioned it. And the more I thought about it, the more perfect that setting seemed, partly because, as you say, um, there's this nice overlap between animals and humans and, and uh, the primal kind of feeling of of a mother and, yes, the animal-like behavior of the gunman. But also, as a setting, it's so, zoos are such odd and interesting places. Um, in the book, it's beautiful, as well as there's there are lights strung up everywhere, decorations for Halloween, 
as and obviously in the middle of that beauty, it is terrifying. You know, in real life, I think we, for a lot of parents, it really kind of, it, it stands in as a symbol of sort of the routine of parenting, the day-to-day, sometimes boredom, very domestic, and yet we keep wild things in boxes there. There's this sort of disturbing element running underneath it. So, yeah, I really, from the beginning, started to think that it plays through some really interesting themes to have that as the setting. And you mentioned the whole story takes place in the span of three hours. Was that easier or harder to write than books that cover days or weeks or years? <laughs> now, I like the way you phrase that because I think often people assume it is harder, and I do think it's easier. I think there's something really nice about having that tight focus. Um, I think it's nice even on sort of the sentence-by-sentence level because, you know, obviously as a writer, what you should be doing is always – saying and not using 10 words if you could say it in five. But there was this real need for that, especially in this story, to keep it really tight because I wanted it to stay in real time. I wanted it to still move forward um, really smoothly. And yet it's a character-based book. It's I think the intensity of the feeling comes not as much from the plot twists, although there are those, <clears throat> but because you care. Because hopefully these people feel real, feel like a three-dimensional woman and an equally three-dimensional four-year-old. So to try to do that, to get the character in, to get the backstory, to know where these people are from, but to do it in really short strokes so that, you know, you're not bogging down the story. I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to have them hiding in the bushes from a gunman and then go into a a 10-page description of what Joan's life was like in high school. So so those kind of touches had to be very carefully done, and and I thought it was a really interesting challenge. It, It made the process really, really satisfying. Do you think you'll write like that again or get spend some more time the next time around? (laughs) <laughs> I'd love to think that uh, even if it's not the, the uh, real life, the real time time frame, that I would still keep it tight. Uh, it is, I don't, there's a pleasure to cutting unnecessary words. Uh, but I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't particularly think the next book would be told in real time. That feels like something that worked for this story in particular. Uh, but we'll see. You know, each story is, each story tends to be completely different and sort of, um, forces its own outline. And you do tackle a very serious topic, uh, mass shootings in in this book. And at some point mm-hmm. along the way, you do mention the effect that Columbine had on this country and the way it influenced all the shootings that followed it. Are you worried at mm-hmm. all that your book might have that same effect? Ah, oh, geez. I, I... I would not say it's an intense worry. Lord, I mean, looking at every single movie and television show that's out there, as many guns as we have not only in real life, but all across pop culture. Um, no, I don't I don't suppose there's any part of me that feels like that's reasonable that one particular book um, would make something would would be so different. It as you as you say, yes, Columbine changed everything and changed the way police deal with this sort of situation. Um, I wanted to have police reaction uh, realistic. Uh, I did some research and, you know, hopefully that part plays out. But I, 
I don't really think it works as sort of a model as how someone might do this sort of thing. I don't think the, um, you know, it's, it's also not that detailed in terms of the gunman. Ultimately, this isn't a book about the gunman, and I don't think it's a book about evil. It's a book about, um, it's a book about goodness and doing the right thing, I think. Um, so in, in some ways, I think, too, that sort of focus that is, nothing about sort of the glorification of what the gunmen are doing and it, uh, it feels like a different sort of thing and and I do want to point out to readers that that's absolutely true I mean while we do get to find out sort of what the motive behind it all it's just in passing just very quick and if you just skip over it you might even miss the fact that that's there it really is the story mm-hmm. about this mom and what she would do with, uh, to protect her child mm-hmm. right you know it was always really important to me that this be Jones story that that it's really a setup to explore yeah the the ways we're connected again whether we are whether we are family or whether we're strangers um and those kind of bonds that that develop throughout the course of the story um so yes although i realize people hear sort of there's gunmen in a zoo it is again hopefully much more than um it's much more than action and so i have to ask have you gone to the zoo since coming up with this idea and writing this book? <laughs> no, I feel like people assume that I'm much thinner skinned than I am. Uh, no, I still love the zoo. My child has uh, sort of moved on from that phase and would rather talk about Broadway musicals now. Uh, <laughs> but so we don't we don't go that much. But that is because he does not care to anymore, and not because I'm at all concerned. And in fact, feel like if there were any sort of emergency situation in a zoo. I'm probably more prepared than the average person. Um, I, uh, I feel like I sort of already have a plan in place. So, uh, so it is not other than you know wanting to perhaps wear good running shoes and bring some water. It uh, it has not affected too much. No flip flops. <laughs> no, no flip flops. No, I think we can learn that from the story. <laughs> well, Jen Phillips, author of Fierce Kingdom, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. In The Map Maker's Daughter, Catherine Nuri Hughes introduces us to Queen Mother Nirbanu, one of the most powerful women in the Ottoman Empire. Very little is known about this real-life woman, and she's also relatively unknown in this part of the world. Catherine explained to me why she chose to write about her. Nirbanu was brought to my attention by one of my professors at Princeton, Bernard Lewis, and he thought she would be a really good subject because she rose to the height of power when the Ottoman Empire was at the height of its own power in the 16th century. And he thought she'd be particularly suitable, and and I did too, because very little is known about her. So uh, the question is, what kind of power did she rise to and why and um, and how did it show itself in the trajectory of her life? Her story is really very fascinating. Why is she not so well known in the West? Probably because so little is known about her. Um, but we, we do know that uh, she married the son of Suleiman who succeeded him. And because this is when the empire was at its greatest height, um, she had uh, she was dealing with a lot of other powerful women around the world, including Catherine de' Medici. But uh, just less less was known about the Ottoman Empire because less news was was getting out from there at the time. So where does uh, the fact come into your book, and where did you take creative license and create your story? Ooh. 
Well, there's a great deal of um, creative license. Obviously, you can't mess with the facts. What we know about her is she was born in 1525, um, probably in Venice. We know her parents were patrician. We know that she was illegitimate. We know that she was captured when she was 12 years old from the uh, Greek island of Paros, which was a Venetian possession, and brought to the harem in Istanbul. And we know that she was somehow brought to the attention of Suleiman the Magnificent. Why did he notice this girl of 12? Um, that's where my imagination comes in. And I believe it was because he found her trustworthy. I come up with the reasons why he trusted her, with what he entrusted her with as she gets older, and with what she did with that trust as uh, she became the wife of his son and then the mother of the sultan who succeeded. Now, a large uh, crux of your book or a big problem within it is this whole idea of fratricide. Is right. that something that did exist? How did you handle that? Well, it's it's actually the axis on which the story turns. Um, th- there is no getting around the fact that it is a vile and you know abhorrent practice to to kill uh, to legally um, kill the brothers of the sultan who is about to exceed. And in the case of Nurbanu at her time, these involved young children. So it, it's part of the reason why the, the Ottoman Empire lasted six hundred years, from twelve ninety nine to nineteen twenty two. Um, how do I deal with it? Um, I deal with it by having Nurbanu examine her conscience to the degree that she is involved with the carrying out of this. And I'm not going to give the story away by saying what, how she is and, and what she does with her responsibilities. But um, it, it is, it is the um, problem that dogs her all her life. Um, how to deal how to deal with the fact that fratricide is legal and necessary and abhorrent. And another problem that she's dealing with is that we learn right from the start that she's older and she's speaking to us in her older self, but she's also very sick. Is that something that you made up as well, this her whole being sick and how she became sick? Yes, that is invented by me. I, I just thought it would be useful to have her looking at her life backwards, partly because she's uh, she was more or, late, more or less the age I was when I started this, although I started this book 19 years ago. So, you know, I, I changed kind of along with her as, as she changed in the in the course of her, uh, re, you know, regarding her life. This is yeah. your first book, correct? It's my first novel. It is. So, so what are the advantages and challenges? I know you mentioned it's been 19 years in the making. Well, look, you're more patient when you're older. I was middle-aged when I began the book. I'm not middle-aged anymore. Um, I became a grandmother 17 years ago, and that that helped. There's a big difference between imagining and knowing, of course. And um, the more you know, the better. My husband died last year. That that um, difference in how I saw things and and what I what I wrote into the book uh, after that happened changed a lot as she did. You mentioning your life experiences, what you've gone through, it makes so much sense now after having read the book, the the feelings that Nirvana has for her grandchild, for her husband well, and for those people around her. I'm glad to hear you say that. Um yeah, I felt that the more that happened to me, the better I could understand her, and the more truthful I could, more truthfully I could render her. There's, there's just, 
I don't think I, I don't think I could possibly have written this when I was was younger. I could I could have written it in, in less than nineteen years, but you know, life intervened. Um, but uh, I know this is you, you want to know about my book, not me. But I'm I'm glad I am the age that I am. So let's go back to your book then. Uh, if you had to boil it down, what would you say your book is about? I would say it is about the importance of getting to the bottom of who we are. Um, and of understanding that if we're going to do that, nobody's going to make us do it but ourselves. It's it's hard. Um, nobody else could force us to do something so um, painful and painstaking. And the rewards of getting to the bottom of why we make our choices as we do are really enormous, um, especially if you do it in time to... Um, Make, make amends or um, to try to be better understood by those we love the most. These are all the things that occupy Nurbanu as she, as she lies in, in bed, uh, quarantined and trying to understand what has made her do the things she does. Uh, it's, it's really meant to be optimistic and positive. So will we have to wait another 19 years for your next book? Definitely not. I don't <laughs> Um, no, no, you won't. I don't, I don't know how quickly I can do uh, something else, but I, I do have an idea for another historical, um, a, another historical novel, and um, I'm hoping I can do it in five years. <laughs> well, we'll hope to talk to you then. Catherine Nori Hughes, author of The Mapmaker's Daughter, thank you for joining us. Thanks an awful lot. Bye-bye. If you'd like to read an excerpt from the book, check out themapmakersdaughter.com. Being a police officer in New York City during the 1970s was no easy task. One of the cops from that time period is Ralph Friedman. The now retired detective has penned a new memoir called Street Warrior, the true story of the NYPD's most decorated detective and the era that created him. He told his story to our Pat Farnack. Ralph, why was it time now to write the book? Well, I had a lot of good stories and... uh... I had them under wraps for years, and now I feel because the police are getting hammered from every side, uh, from the public and from the politicians and from the media, and uh, I thought it was time to put the story out there and and show the police in a good light, because the police do a great job, the men and women of all the police departments across the country, but especially the NYPD, and I've worked with them, and I know uh, we've had tough times, too. But we had the backing of our bosses and the the politicians, and times have changed. And I just want to remind people uh, how it was back in the 70s. You do have a lot of great stories. I can see why you did uh, sit down and and put them together and tell your story. I was wondering, when I spoke with you this morning, what kind of guy I would find, whether— in retirement, are you are you mellow? Are you an angry man? How would you describe yourself in retirement first before we get to your stories? Well, I'm certainly not an angry man. I'm very happy with my life. I have a good life. And I don't regret anything I did with the New York City Police Department. And I'm very, very proud to be part of the organization. <laughs> and uh, I feel they do a very good job. And um, I feel I, I I did my piece, you know, to uh, help the city and be part of a police organization that's the greatest in the world. 
Your stats are truly astonishing. 2,000 arrests and then an additional 5,000 assists. You were involved in in 15 shootings, and this was mostly when you were uh, involved with uh, Fort Apache in the Bronx. Yes. Uh, well, I had some shootings outside of Fort Apache also. But, well, that's right. Uh, yeah, I was an active guy. You know, uh, I was always on the street. Other police officers would have done the same if they were in my position. I just happened to be one of these guys that always uh, falls into the action, let's say. I don't know if you would say I'm in the wrong place at the right time or the right place at the wrong time, but I'm always there. Uh, I'm willing to do it 24 hours a day, which I've done. Had no problem with being involved. I like getting involved. Are you one of those people who trouble finds you, or were you? do you look at it that you were just so super tuned to what was going on in your environment? I'd say both. You know, uh, trouble found me. I found trouble. And I was just motivated also. I think we hit the nail on the head on all of them. My favorite story from the book, you were wounded. And I don't remember which time, but you were in intensive care. And when you came to, you were surrounded by eight women who you've been seeing. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Well, I was hurt very badly in the line of duty, but it was uh, it was from a car accident. I was responding to help a police officer. Uh, my partner was driving, not that it was his fault, but we were responding to a ten, single 1013, which is a cop in trouble, and it was a police officer calling in on himself. So we were racing down there, and we got hit, we got T-boned by a, a, a police car. We were in an unmarked car, and we got hit by a blue and white. It hit right on my side into my hip, and I broke. 23 bones, I shattered my hip in 100 pieces, and I broke my pelvic upper and lower left and right. So uh, I was pretty out of it, and I was in the hospital under a lot of drugs at the time while I was being treated. And one day I woke up, and I, I see like these seven or eight girls around the bed, and I tried to focus a little, and I realized I was dating all of them. And they were all coming to the hospital at the same time. They used to come to the hospital, but on this day, they all came at the same time. So, uh, I mean, that looked pretty dangerous. I uh, faked passing out again, blamed it on the drugs, and just closed my eyes and hoped they all went away. The great part about that story, one of those eight is still with you today. She must be quite a woman. She is. The others faded out. I just started dating her. She was the last one I started dating. And uh, the others faded out because my prognosis was very bad. Uh, First, they didn't think I was going to live. Then when they, a couple of days later, they saw I'd survive this. But she knew I had that inner strength and that I would survive and be okay. She just knew that, you know, the way I focused, I guess, on uh, doing police work and my uh, the way I attack things, that I was going to attack this problem and solve it. And that meant that I was going to take care of myself and get myself better. And I got to credit her with helping me get better and the police officers that guarded me in the hospital because I had protection. But they worked with me and encouraged me. Like when I started to try to walk again, if I took 10 steps, they would have to push me to do number 11 and 12 where I didn't think I could make it. So I had a lot of help. And she, when I got out of the hospital, I was in a wheelchair and she moved in with me and helped me with everything. I mean, you know, it was, 
she was there every step for me, and I probably couldn't do it without her. And it was she's she sounds like an angel. She sounds like an angel. I mean, not only did she believe enough in herself after all those women were uh, around your bed, oh, and yeah. she and she believed in herself enough to know that she was the right person for you, and she was an angel to well, help you through it as she, well. It was it's definitely incredible. worked out. We're, you know, we're still together thirty-four years later. That's amazing. Congratulations! Anyone hear something? <laughs> Today is the anniversary of the accident. Oh, my. 34 years. It happened August 1st of 1983. And that was career-ending for you, wasn't it? Yes, that was the end of my career. And the ironic thing was, all the incidents I was in, and I was in a lot of dangerous situations, and under fire and everything, and I wind up getting a career-ending injury by accident, ironically, by my own people. It was uh, a rookie cop driving. A rookie cop did something that all the bad guys couldn't do, take me off the street. Morale is everything in in police work. What do you feel is the state of morale on the police force today? Well, back then, the morale was great. Today, morale is down the toilet. You know, police are being micromanaged. They're being handcuffed at every turn. They're not allowed to do their job. They're not allowed to use their training. Uh, I think morale is absolutely terrible. Um... And I, the, I feel the mayor is uh, pretty much an enemy of the police. Uh, he really doesn't back them. I don't think he respects them at all. And it shows in his actions and his interactions with the police. And that that totally affects morale. But yet, the men and women in the NYPD still go out there and do their jobs and put their lives on the line every day. The city should be so thankful that there are men and women that do this. Do you miss it? Every minute. You so, were, I don't know if I could do it today. I was going to ask I mean, ask if that. I went out there and did what I did back then, uh, you know, we used to call, you know, a gut feeling or a sixth sense. You know, you had a gut feeling yeah. and you followed through with it and you caught a guy with a gun on the street. That was considered good police work. Or if you picked up a car that you thought was suspicious and it winds up being stolen. Today, they look at my police work as probably a violation of somebody's rights. Would you urge a young person looking for a career or looking to be a cop, would you urge them, yeah, go ahead? I actually would. You know, I I still think it's the greatest job in the world. I think uh, they would come on under a different environment and they would adjust to the times. You know, the police department is uh, always uh, evolving. And when I came on, it was in the middle of a big change, too. There was a NAP commission uh, was coming out of the 60s where there was... uh, police corruption, and things uh, totally changed. And I came on during that time, and, uh, you know, people saw that as a big change, and people couldn't do police work either, but it, it goes on. And you adjust to the time, and you you do what's right for the moment. Well, I enjoyed reading Street Warrior, and we've been talking today to Ralph Friedman, who wrote Street Warrior, and the entire title is The True Story of the NYPD's Most Decorated Detective and the Era That Created Him. Thanks for joining me today, Ralph. Thank you for having me on. That's where we close the book on this week's podcast. Email us at books at WCBS880.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.